This is a large gathering, rather daunting. Remember to just get out of the way. And um, in Santa Cruz, we get uh, fairly large gatherings, but it's about half as much. This is uh, nice. It's uh, very wonderful, actually, to be here in the peninsula and to just, um, I'm kind of blown away with the commitment. I can just feel the, this place has a lot of love and it's a thriving city Dharma center. And who would have imagined that um, this is here 20 years ago? It's um, quite impressive and amazing. <clears throat> I really like um, being part of the Dharma community. That's I feel like walking in here is like coming home. I was reading in uh, Gill's book, and it's a beautiful book that he wrote, the different essays. I actually thought the sitting started at seven, so much for my mindfulness, but I actually was here about 45 minutes early so I could um, hang out a bit. And I um, also looked at his book, which I think is very well done, which is, I believe... Um, for free distribution on the table. And if you, some of you have not looked at it, I would recommend it's a very simple and wonderful primer for teachings of Theravadan Buddhism. I was also touched to read um, some of the history of IMC, Insight Meditation Center here, and that it was actually started by a friend of mine that I, I didn't know that he and his wife started at Howard and Ingrid Noodleman. And Howard, uh, it's nice to see his name here and that he's part of this. And Howard actually was a, a physician. He passed away a number of years ago and I believe um, 92 or 93. He was a, a surgeon at El Camino Hospital. And he actually had heard that I was doing or teaching mindfulness-based stress reduction programs at the Santa Cruz Medical Clinic. And he called me one day and said, Bob, hi, I'm Howard Noodleman, and I'm a surgeon here at the hospital, and I hear you're doing this work in Santa Cruz, and I'm interested to meet you um, and maybe start a program at El Camino Hospital in Mountain View. And then went on to say that he was actually dying of a second reoccurrence to melanoma cancer. And so I went up and met with him and was... Um, really taken by his um, heartfulness, his sincerity, and um, we became uh, friends. And uh, he helped open the doors for me to uh, teach at El Camino Hospital. I've been uh, teaching the mindfulness-based stress reduction program there since 1993. Well, tonight I just maybe want to talk a little bit. I, I was thinking about what do I talk about? And I think I want to talk about some of the journeys to uh, 
practice. And my journey, just to be on the personal note, began when I was about four years old. And I was riding in the back seat of my parents' car. And I'm not sure why or how it arose, but I realized riding one day in the back seat of my parents' car that one day that I was going to die and that it could happen at any moment. I don't know how many of us here can trace back to that moment when you realized that you were going to die. It's a powerful memory and I trust it's inside all of us but it was very striking for me and I mentioned to my mom and dad this and they very lovingly said oh don't worry Bobby it's not going to happen for a long 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 time well I knew that they were actually trying to be nice to me and I also knew that they were not telling me the truth because what I had realized sitting there was that it could indeed happen at any moment, that there was no guarantee. Now, 52, a long, 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 long time has uh, begun to catch up. And of course, when I occasionally go to, to cemeteries to practice there, I will see, of course, many gravestones of people there that were born after me. But to further hammer the nail By the time I was 10 years old, I had lost my brother, who uh, I shared a room with him. He died of Tay-Sachs disease, and my best friend, Ellen Chabot, and my grandfather, who lived downstairs. And so by 10 years old, I knew that um, things change. I was a pretty confused and scared kid growing up trying to figure out uh, what is the meaning of life. And it didn't help uh, growing up in the late 50s or early 60s with the Vietnam War and not knowing whether I was going to get drafted. And the Beatles grew their hair long and things were happening. (laughs) My cousin, I lived in Newton, Massachusetts, and he used to go over to Tim Larry's house. And I didn't know what he was doing there until later. But I was, when I look back on it, and it's interesting, my, my son, Ben, is just starting high school. Actually, today was his first day for orientation, and Wednesday he starts school. But on Saturday, they had a parent orientation for uh, parents, uh, which I thought was very helpful. And they broke us into small groups, and one of the questions asked of us, what was our high school memories? And distinctly, what came up for me was uh, fear and confusion. So I was got very interested in an early age about what is the meaning of life. It was really up for me, still is up for me. And it's funny how I ended up being drawn to the East, and I really attribute my first experiences of being drawn to the East was, um, you know, I was a nice Jewish boy growing up in a suburb of uh, Boston, 
we kept a kosher home. So funny, isn't it? So many of these Buddhists are Jewish. <laughs> Growing up in my kosher home, we, we couldn't eat Chinese food there, but we would go to Chinese restaurants. And when I would go to a Chinese restaurant, I loved going there. The feeling was really different than Howard Johnson's or, or like Denny's. That's the equivalent of Denny's, maybe or maybe not. I don't know. The 28 flavors, though, that was pretty novel, the ice cream. But there was a very different feel in a Chinese restaurant. This is a generalization and part in generalizations, but the food was different and interesting and it smelled good. And there was all this, you know, images of dragons and Buddhas and different things on the walls and. The waiters and waitresses had a certain countenance that was very different feel to me than going to a regular American restaurant. And I really traced maybe um, my first being drawn to the East was through its foods and through the feeling that was emitted in those restaurants. My first exposure to the teachings of the East was with Latsu and the Tao Te Ching, which I discovered in a uh, small graduate school that I was going to in northeastern Vermont. And I couldn't believe when I began to read the Tao Te Ching, The Way of Life by Lao Tzu, that someone thought about life in that way. Up to that point, I had never been exposed to anything like this, and I couldn't, um, I couldn't believe that someone thought about life in that way. It resonated so deeply with what I thought about life. I was so excited about the, this teaching from Latsu and the Tao Te Ching that I began to get very deeply involved in Eastern philosophy and psychology. I'm studying um, Buddhism and Hinduism, Taoism, Zen. Beginning to learn meditation in the middle 70s. Eventually ended up out in San Francisco going to a school called California Institute of Integral Studies. And a friend of mine suggested that would I be interested in taking a Vipassana insight meditation retreat? And she was a, a good friend and I really trusted her um, heart and wisdom. And I was already practicing some mindfulness, but never in a very formal sense. And so I... I said, yeah, I'm going to go. And I went off on, a, I believe it was a, either an eight or ten day retreat and felt like um, once having gone through that retreat, it was with uh, Dr. Rena Surkar. Some of you may know her. She's a Vipassana teacher in San Francisco, Burmese Vipassana teacher. And um, felt like that I experienced during that retreat permanent neurological brain damage and I've never been the same ever since and I am so grateful for it. <laughs> It was in this uh, retreat that I discovered some of, um, I was also a psychology student at the time, and um, some of the psychological aspects within the Buddhist teachings. And one of the teachings that was perhaps the most revolutionary for me was this practice that when uncomfortable states of mind, emotions would arise, such as anger or lust or sadness, fear, whatever it was, I was instructed to just simply acknowledge that it was there. 
I had spent my life prior to that trying to analyze it, suppress it, push it away, unacknowledge it. And this notion of actually beginning to turn in and acknowledge what it is that's being felt was revolutionary to me. And it still is, even after all these years, the practice of acknowledging things as they are. And began to notice that as I put my energy into acknowledging what's there, that actually um, my anger, sadness, lust, fear, whatever it was, actually began to somewhat dissipate. It was kind of like the principle of what my dad taught me when I was around 16. When I began to drive and growing up outside of Boston, you know, we get snow. And occasionally driving in the snow, you can get into a skid. And the first impulse when driving, particularly for me as a new driver, when I got into a skid was to turn away from the skid. I didn't want to get close to that skid, and yet I discovered that the more that I turned away from it, the more that I just lost control and kept on skidding out. I was telling my dad about this one day, and he said, you know, Bob, if you want to get out of that skid, you've got to turn into it. And that, that seemed crazy to me. That seemed counterintuitive. And so I didn't believe him like teenagers probably are. And so I kept on turning away and began to discover from my own personal experience that it wasn't getting me out of the skid. And so one day I dared to turn into it. And lo and behold, my car began to straighten out. And that was remarkable that it began to straighten out by turning into the fear. So there's a wonderful parallel times with mindfulness and working with uncomfortable emotions, turning into the feeling. Yet our tendency often is to turn away, to not acknowledge what's there. Well, as I experienced this um, brain damage in a very good way, of changing um, as um, a rotation of consciousness, if you will, after taking that retreat, I decided that I wanted to get involved in studying Buddhism deeply. Rena mentioned that she was going to be going to Burma to visit her teacher in a monastery in the forest. She asked me if I would like to go among some other students. And without any hesitation and with real um, excitement, yes. So I'll never forget that date, November 9th, 1980, getting in a plane and flying to uh, Burma, what's now known as Myanmar, and meeting uh, Rina's teacher, who's the venerable Tungpulu Kabaye Siero, became my teacher, one of my teachers. And Tungpulu Siero was a very renowned Buddhist monk, Although not many Westerners know about him. Actually, Tampulu Seto is mentioned in Jack Cornfield's book, Living Buddhist Masters. Tampulu Seto was known for this particular type of meditation practice that's found in the 
four foundations of mindfulness, particularly under the foundation of the body, which is the 32 parts of the body meditation. Not many Westerners have been exposed to the 32 parts of the body meditation. There's other practices that many Westerners have not been exposed to in this particular section. In the mindfulness of the body, there's the practice of the mindfulness of breathing that many of us are familiar with. The practice of being mindful in our postures. The practice of being mindful in activities of day-to-day life, clear comprehension. But then there's three other practices that have been taught in the Mahasatipatthana Sutta, the great foundations of mindfulness. And in the body section, there's also the practices of the 32 parts of the body meditation. And the practice of the elements, four primary elements, four secondary. <coughs> lastly, there's a meditation practice on the nine various decomposing stages of a corpse, ranging from the day of uh, its first death, of, of the body's death, till eventually it turns into dust. Well, I decided uh, when I went to Burma to meet Tampulusero to ordain as a monk temporarily and, and did so in his forest monastery. And there Tampulusero taught us all of these uh, different practices and Though we didn't really get a chance to uh, practice the nine different decomposing stages of a corpse, but we did actually go to the cemetery quite often in the middle watch of the night from 10 in the evening till 2 in the morning. Tungpulu Sero was a contemporary with Mahasi Sero. Many of you are probably familiar with Mahasi Sero. Mahasi Sero was Upandita's teacher. Many of you know about Upandita? And Mahasi Sero, well, Mahasi Sero and Tampulu Sero were contemporaries. And Mahasi Sero and Tampulu Sero had the same teacher, which was Mingum Sero. So Mahasi stayed in the cities and revolutionized meditation in a very large way, where Tampulu Sero was a, a forest monk. In 1981, we brought Tungpulu Sero and a group of monks and nuns back from Burma to the United States, and we helped found a monastery with Rina Sirkar in Boulder Creek. Some of you may not be aware, there's actually the very first Theravada monastery in this hemisphere is in Boulder Creek called the Tungpulu Kaba'e Monastery. And it's a very small Burmese Buddhist monastery. It was at this monastery that I ended up living for eight years. And when Tungpulu Sero, he would come and go. He would come and spend the rains retreats there. But he left behind a senior monk to be the abbot of the monastery that became like my grandfather. His name was Lindet Sero. And I lived very closely with Lindet Sero, helped take care of him, study, of course, from him for many years. And I want to really honor Lainet Sero tonight, for Lainet Sero is my beloved teacher, my father, grandfather. And he died on 
April 27th of this year, at the age of 98. He had been a monk for 78 years. It's a long time. 78 years. And Leonid Sero was one of the most humblest and simple people, monks, that I had ever met in my life. Leonid Sero had no assumption of any type of self-importance, though, of course, it wasn't self-resignation uh, either. He had extraordinary qualities of kindness and humility. There's some spiritual teachers that you will meet along the way that are truly remarkable. And they have a kind of a charisma that goes with them. Which is, you know, amazing. And as a almost polar opposite, Leinitz Seto was kind of the opposite of charisma. You may not notice if he was even sitting in the room. There was kind of like not a lot of energy uh, coming from him. I'd like to offer some teachings from Landed Seto tonight that I um, like to just pass on. And Leonard Seto was also a little bit of a mischievous trickster. In Tunkulu Seto's tradition, many of the monks and nuns practiced ascetic practices called the Dutunga practices. They're found in the Vasudhi Magha, the path of purification. These practices are about helping to develop contentment. They're not necessarily something to be advertised as, oh, look at what I'm doing. Aren't I cool? Some of these practices may seem quite extreme to some of us here in the West. Actually, we would almost say shocking. One of the practices that the Seros kept, the monks kept, was the practices of uh, abstaining from lying down. Tungpulu Seto, who died at the age of 90, is said didn't lie down for 50 years. Now, you could see some of these bamboo cushioned chairs they got. It's pretty cushed, too. But these practices of the sitting practice are to help one to cultivate the qualities of energy, to be content with what's there. So one night, I, I'm not sure how and why or what happened, but I was... Uh, I ended up sleeping in Seto's room. I ended Seto's room that this one night. I was a lying down type guy, not a sitting practice. I've, I've done some sitting practice, and um, it's not so easy. But I was lying down at the time, and I'd fall asleep, and then I'd wake up because I was so excited. Oh, I'm sleeping with my teacher. And he's sitting there, right, just like a few feet away from me. And I, I would think in my mind, what is he doing? And I would turn and I'd look at him. And all of a sudden, he'd just be looking at me and smiling. <laughs> and so then I decided I'm going to stay on that side. I'm not going to turn. And I dozed off again and then I woke up, maybe it was like one or two in the morning, and I thought to myself, what is he doing? 
And I just very slightly opened my eyes. I didn't even have to move my body. And when I opened up my eyes, I looked at him. He was looking at me, smiling. (laughs) This went on all night. It was uncanny. What is he doing? He's smiling at me. Seto was also the epitome of the teaching of mind your own dharma. The monastery could be in flames. Everyone could be going Kelly Wampus. And Seto would just be fine just sitting in his room, content with what's there. I really received a lot of his teaching of minding one's own dharma. He was really good at that. He was also not to say selfish. He was also very compassionate and shared a lot with with people. But he was not one to draw like to draw people to him. The last time that I saw Seattle was a few years ago. I was visiting him in Burma, in his monastery. He was in his middle 90s at that point. The very last night, our last conversation, I was leaving for home the next day. I asked Seto, um, you know, you're in your middle 90s. And I know that death can come at any time for any one of us. I mean, I might not even be here tomorrow. But in your middle 90s, what are you going to do when death comes knocking at your door? What are you going to do? Well, he looked at me a long time and smiled. Then he said something that surprised me. He said, Bob, are you afraid to die? And I wasn't expecting that question. I wanted to hear what he was going to do. And so he caught me off guard and I said, "Uh, yeah, I'm young. I got kids. I don't want to die. And he looked at me for a really long time and he smiled and said, you need to meditate more. (laughs) Okay, Seattle. That is true. Then I continued to ask him again, Seattle, I understand I need to meditate more. I have fears around dying. What are you going to do when death comes knocking at your door? And in true Sado fashion, he looked at me a long time <laughs> again and then smiled. And then he said something to me that I'll never forget, and I'm passing it on to you. He said that if I see something, I'll be mindful of seeing. If I hear something, I'll be mindful of hearing. If there's different bodily sensations that are arising, I will be mindful of sensations. If there's thoughts and emotions that occur, I'll be mindful that there's thoughts and emotions occurring. 
If there's sights, I'll be aware of sights or smells. This is how I'll die. This is how I want you to die. Mm. I was blown away with that teaching. It couldn't have been said more simple and yet so profound. And I want to trust and hope that he died that way. Just being mindful of what's here. So the practice of mindfulness comes back into ourselves of becoming present. I just want to do a few readings and I see it's getting close to our time. So becoming mindful begins with the journey. Saraha says that within my body are all the sacred places of the world. And the most profound pilgrimage I can ever make is within my own body. Beginning that pilgrimage of being within our own body. And speaking of the body, I was mentioning earlier the 32 parts of the body meditation. And some of you might be wondering, what are the 32 parts? Did anybody wonder about that? Yeah. I don't know why these 32 parts were picked, because there's more than 32 parts in the body. I don't know why it's arranged in the way that it's arranged as far as why certain parts are next to other parts, and you'll be very interested to know that that brain is right next to excrement. Maybe something similar with that. But essentially, in the 32 parts of the body, it's broken into 20 solid parts and 12 liquid. And to practice this meditation actually takes 165 days, and we'll begin in groups of five, with the first five head, hair, body, hair, nails, teeth, skin. And you do that five days forwards and then five days backwards and then five days forward and backwards and then go on to the next group. So on and on it goes in that rotation, head here, body here, nails, teeth, skin, skin, teeth, nails, body here, head here, back and forth, five days forward, five days backwards, five days forwards and backwards. So the 32 parts are head here, body here, nails, teeth, skin. Next group, flesh, sinews, which are like cartilages, uh, nerves, tendons. So flesh, sinews, bones, bone marrow, and kidneys. That's the next five. Then um, the next group of five, heart, liver, diaphragm, spleen, lungs. Then last of the solid parts, Large intestines, small intestines, stomach, feces, brain. <laughs> Liquid parts, biofilm, pus, blood, sweat, fat. Then tears, grease, saliva, mucus, synovic fluid, and urine. This 32 parts of the body meditation is a very powerful practice. It helps us to get 
to understand the true nature of this body, of what it is made up of. In a few months, we don't have a date picked yet, but in, in Santa Cruz, and we'll extend the invitation to you that we're going to actually going to actually offer a six, it's actually about five months, five and a half months uh, of a 32 parts of the body meditation class. We'll meet once a week and work with five parts forward, five parts backwards, five parts forward and backwards. Move it on. So this practice is the practice of awakening. And interestingly enough, in Pali, the word for meditation is bhavana. And sometimes it can be rendered as the calling to remember to come back into the moment. That seems like a wonderful definition for meditation, the calling to remember to come back. In the year 399, which was a long time ago, St. Augustine wrote this that people travel to wonder at the height of the mountains and at the huge waves of the seas, at the long courses of the rivers and at the vast compass of the ocean. People wonder at the circular motion of the stars and then they walk right past themselves without ever wondering. The year 399. A lot of things have changed since 399 and then again, some things have not. So... I ended up giving um, an entirely different talk than what I had written. And it's wonderful to just um, be fluid and feel inspired here tonight. And um, I had heard that uh, during 32 parts of the body meditation, it is to a householder, as in it will put you off sex permanently. <laughs> And one of my teachers uh, said to me, well, unfortunately you're married, otherwise you could just do the 32-part meditation and get it over with. <laughs> so I have been scared, even though I have felt the calling to do it, to get detachment from my body. Um, I do want to continue to live a householder life and continue my commitment <laughs> continue my commitment uh, to my husband and so have been reluctant to mm-hmm. dive into it. So if you have any comment. Yeah. Thank you. That is a very beautiful question. A real question. <clears throat> I believe that, um, that the 32 parts of the body meditation is a practice for householders as well as monastics. And they even talk about in the so-called stages of enlightenment in Theravada Buddhism that we don't even get rid of lust till like we're like a never returner. And so uh, there's still plenty of time. <laughs> <laughs> and in some of the classical renderings of the 32 parts of the body, some of the classical teachings may some of the wording may not necessarily be very resonant with us. And I'm wanting to honor the integrity of 
what is being said in the Pali Canon, and also, is there a skillful use of language? And so, sometimes the 32 parts of the body, one of the words that comes up a lot is to understand and penetrate the repulsive nature of the body. Now, many of us in, in America, we have such big issues with our bodies that, you know, like, we've been working with hating our bodies all our lives, and we're just beginning to try to embrace them and, and be, have some compassion, and now all of a sudden we're getting a teaching that it's repulsive, like, oh my gosh, what do I do? And so, my own sense from practicing the 32 parts of the body that for me, how I translate it, and it may not be the accurate rendering in the Pali, though for any Pali scholars, we can uh, put them together and they can discuss it. But um, my sense of the wording that I like to use is to understand the true nature of the body. And let us, from understanding this true nature of the body, come to our own understanding Others. So I like the language, true nature of the body. And, you know, many of us, uh, oh, there's a wonderful saying from um, the Dubliners by James Joyce about the Mr. Duffy. The line goes, and Mr. Duffy happened to live a short distance away from his body. And many, many of us, you know, live a short distance away from our body, or maybe even a long distance. And, and so this 32 parts of the body meditation, particularly with MBSR programs, we're doing body scans. We're really inhabiting the body. But the 32 parts of the body is very different than a body scan. It's really going into really beginning to penetrate the true nature of this body. And we begin to see that this body is really made up of these anatomical parts. And as we penetrate even more deeply, we begin to see that these parts are made up of elements, solidity, liquidity, motion, temperature. And ultimately, what it's beginning to show us is the three characteristics of existence, of impermanence, dissatisfactoriness, emptiness, or insubstantiality. To penetrate this practice, to see things as they are. So we say in the 32 parts of the body that is a powerful practice to help build concentration. Sometimes it's said that uh, if you don't get enlightened through doing the 32 parts of the body, you'll be reborn as a genius because you're, you're, you're reciting over and over again all these parts. You're, you're getting really deep concentration. Of course, 32 parts of the body tradition is that many people have been healed with various diseases through this practice. But most importantly, this is a practice to penetrate into the three characteristics of existence and the potentialities for deeper awakening. But I think that householders definitely can begin to do this practice. And I think many of you know Richard Shankman, and Richard and I are actually going to be doing a, um, a four-month series at Spirit Rock one Saturday a month on the meditation on the body. And one of the days we'll be actually devoting to the 32 parts of the body and to the elements and to the death meditation practices. Any other, please? Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. A householder's life. Yeah. <laughs> or whatever life. You know, yeah. Intimacy. Mm-hmm. So, because we're becoming more intimate, I, I could just feel the possibility of intimate mm-hmm. with ourselves. Yeah. So, that's my... Thank you. And um, uh, a couple of months ago, I actually did a, a small class on my teachers at Santa Cruz Vipassana. And it was mostly on the 32 parts of the body. And some people just commented just in the experience that you were just mentioning for yourself of developing a more intimate relationship with this body. At first, kind of like, oh, pus, blood, sweat, fat, oh. Then all of a sudden realizing, oh, this is my body and developing a, a type of an intimate relationship. Of course, uh, <laughs> Tungpu Lucero also, he would come... He came once uh, every for four years straight and he would give a, deliver a whole bunch of teachings. And first time he came was all about um, mindfulness meditation practice. Next time was on 32 parts of the body. Then the next time was on the 80 different families of organisms that live inside your body. <laughs> and so for, for, for 80 straight evenings, he would talk about and there's the organism that lives in the eye or the organism that lives in the ear or the organism that lives in the base of the scalp or wherever it is in the gut. And there was a poem that was always attached to this, where at the end was that these these beings live there and they eat, of course, our body as its host and they defecate and they urinate and they copulate and then they die. And thus your body is a cemetery. And then he'd go on to the next part, the next organism that lives there. So it's also beginning to penetrate again. This body that we do hold. I mean, yes, I'm a householder, too. And I like relations with my wife. And at the same time, we want to also penetrate within our practice to understand this true nature of this body as an impermanent organism that comes and goes. So it's kind of holding both worlds. Our time is just about here. Is there any last? Take one more if. Thank you. So let's um, end with a very short um, sitting, just a minute. So it's wonderful that we have gathered here tonight. And as I mentioned, when we first came of welcoming ourselves and that you know, we've all come here to be part of this sacred space. The purification of our mind and our body, of sitting practice, heart practice. So it's within our tradition to let us all share our merits. May we invite all beings and all world systems, wherever they are, to receive the merit that we have gathered here tonight for ourselves. May it be shared with all beings. And may we never underestimate the powers of love. And I'll just end with a Buddhist story of a bird named Tasu. And she loved her forest home. And one day the forest caught on fire and all of the animals and creatures left 
fearful for their lives. And Tasu, having loved her home so much, decided that she wanted to stay and she was going to try to put the fire out. And so she began to fly to the nearest river or pond and she would fill her beak full of water and she would fly up high above the raging flames and she would empty that beak full of water on the flames and she would do this till she could do it anymore. All day long, deep into the night, pouring that beak of water onto the raging forest fire. Now it's said that the celestial beings above became aware of Tasu's intentions and heartfulness and out of their just their shocking compassion for this little bird, the celestial beings began to cry and the tears turned into the clouds and the clouds turned into rain and the rain put out the fire. So it said never to underestimate the powers of love. And in this time of so much turbulence, terrorism, so much fear and pain in this world. May each of us here never underestimate the power of love. Even a single action of love can change the world. So thank you all and wishing for peace. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.